Good morning. Thank you, thank you. The um, one, two, three. That's what I teach Rhea when I wanted to listen. <laughs> so you to get to the kind of three to focus. The, um, <clears throat> I forgot my whole sermon. Stick to your notes today. The, uh, the sermon today is going to be exciting, hopefully. Um, the number one question that most pastors, church leaders, elders, whatever you want to call them, think about. This is the number one question that was done by um, a survey in the United States of America, the UK, and Australia. The number one question that most pastors ask is this, how do I grow my church? And so we, they engage in, in tactics to captivate the crowd. You know, a free cup of coffee, a free shave on Father's Day, a free manicure on Mother's Day for all new customers. Sorry, sorry, all new first-time visitors. Um, but the number one question we should be asking is, is how do we make disciples? Because that's, that's the model that we see Jesus using. So just put yourself in this picture. You're a 12-year-old. If you're a male or female, just try and picture this. If you're, you're a 12-year-old Jewish boy, you're going to turn 13. You've spent, since you were five years old, in the synagogue on a daily basis, being taught by the local rabbi, and you have learned how to quote the Torah and the Tanaka, word for word, as best you can. And at your graduation, effectively, you've, you, your, your mom and dad, sort of like coming out of primary school, you know, your mom and dad are there, and the family's there, and the community's around, and you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna graduate, effectively. And you've been, you've been questioned, you've been taken aside by the local rabbi, and you've been questioned on the Torah. Quote Exodus. Chapter 1 to chapter 5, word for word. And you can, the rabbi would pull up any opportunity, or any scripture from anywhere, and you've got to quote it word for word without missing one. And then you hear these words on that graduation, because he knows who he's going to select. And you'll walk up, and he'll say to you, Lech Hakiri, Joseph. Lech Hakiri, David. Which means, follow me. At that moment, you have just received the most honorable thing that any Jew could ever receive. And that was to become part of the Talmudin, the disciple of a rabbi. And you would spend from that age, from the age of 13 until the age of 30, living with that rabbi, following him wherever he went, watching how he brushed his teeth, his hair, how he wore his clothes, how he, his mannerisms were when he spoke. You would listen to him interpreting the Torah. And you are now the next generation of the custodians of the Torah to protect the Word of God to His people and for His people. Women couldn't receive it. It wasn't available for any girls. They would then go back and work with mum and dad at the house doing what the women those days would do. When you think about that, the honor, the honor that was given, when Martha and Mary, uh, when Jesus came into their home, Martha is running around, and, she, and we've, heard him, we've heard it said that she was running around making sandwiches that Jesus didn't order. Um, that's probably a little bit dishonorable of Martha. What Martha was doing is she was actually honoring a rabbi and his disciples in her home. That was of the culture of its day, to, to host a rabbi in, her, in your home was an absolute privilege. And here comes Jesus, this rabbi, sitting in her home, and she's going and she's serving him and his disciples, showing them honor. And she sees her sister sitting at his feet. And she says, do you see my sister sitting there and I'm running around serving you and your disciples? Can you ask her to come and help me? Jesus says to her, Martha, you are concerned with many things. But Mary, and it's not about Martha being doing things in works. Martha was not doing things in works. She was doing things correctly. So Jesus is not putting Martha down, but he's elevating the position that Mary took. 
To sit at the feet of a rabbi meant that you took the position of a disciple. That is the posture of a disciple. A rabbi would always sit above his students on a stool, on a rock, on a, on a bench, or whatever it was, and they would sit at his feet. That was a sign of respect and honor, right at his feet, to get the very words from his mouth, to pick up the dust that was coming from his feet. The, the greatest honor was to walk as the number one student behind the rabbi, gathering the dust from his feet. The dust from the feet of a rabbi was a, was, was a blessing. If they do not receive you, even at least shake the dust from your feet and move on. We've interpreted that as, as a sign against them. That's what the ESV interprets. But what it is, is least leave at least just a little bit of blessing. We have issues because the gospel for us, the story starts in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man. And so everything is around sin, but we, we should start the story in Genesis chapter 1, but that's a whole other sermon altogether. What I want to speak about is, is discipleship. This is the model that we see Jesus model. Discipleship is the number one most honorable thing that we can receive, and it's the most honorable thing that we can do for our rabbi Jesus or our teacher, our Lord, our Savior, is to, is to become devoted disciples. The church has become concerned with gathering crowds. Jesus was never, ever counting the crowds. He loved the crowds. But Jesus is counting disciples. You know that not everyone born again is, is a disciple. You know that. Everyone who believes in him, he gives them the right to become sons and daughters of the living God. But a disciple is a decision that you make. I'm going to read that right now. Let's read it. John chapter 8. If you want to go there in your Bibles. You know, once you weren't chosen as a disciple, you'd go and do a trade. That's, you'd go back and help your dad, whatever that was, you know. So for Peter, it was a fisherman. Um, others became tax collectors. Some became zealots. Others would be carpenters farmers, whatever it was that you, your, your parents did is pretty much what you took on. And so Jesus comes and he calls to hear. So Jesus would have looked like a rabbi after he was baptized. He would have, he would have taken on a, on a, on a robe, a, a shawl that he would have worn, a prayer shawl that would have shown that he was a, a rabbi in the community. You needed to become a rabbi if you were called and then witnessed by two witnesses. So there were two witnesses that witnessed Jesus. One was a prophet, which was John, and the other was a voice from heaven, God himself speaking down. This is my son whom I love and am well pleased. That's, that was all he required before a community of people. It was done in front of the community. And because of that, he was then, um, in a sense, ordained as a rabbi. And he goes and finds these people who were not the clever. They were not the elite. They were the forgotten. Those who would then go out the mundane of society. That is an incredible picture of what Jesus wants to do with each one of us. He calls them from the mundane of their life, doing the every single day. Lech hakiri, come follow me. What did I say? John chapter 8. Yeah. So Jesus, anyways, preached about himself. He says, when you have, when, from verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man... Then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. That is the sign of a disciple. Jesus was a disciple of His heavenly Father. I say nothing except what He taught me to say. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Another sign of a disciple. A disciple would do what is pleasing to his rabbi. They lived as bond servants, willingly wanting to serve their rabbi because they were given the greatest honor that anyone could ever be given to be called to become a disciple. See, in Western society, we don't understand that. 
Because disciple Talmud, Talmud, which is, or you become a part of the Talmudin, which is a, you become a Talmud, a disciple, is a student. But we understand, stu- because we live in the West, a student is someone who sits in a classroom and gets fed information. Then you write that information down in an exam, and if you get it correct, you pass. So if you can remember stuff, you'll pass. But a disciple is different. In these day and ages, it was someone not only who would listen, but who would abide, follow and obey and mimic the, the, the leader, the, 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 the rabbi, the teacher. More, it's more like um, apprenticeship. So I work in a construction company, and we have apprentices that work for some of our trades. And majority of their time, 80% of their time is spent actually working on site with a qualified carpenter or bricklayer. The other 20% is, is actually learning uh, the rules and the regulations of Australian standards. That's effectively what it is. But they've got to learn. You do you, you, you not lay a straight line of bricks and know how to tie in the different corners by writing an exam. You do it by working hands-on with someone who's done it for years and years, who learned it from someone else, who did it for years and years. And my partner, um, they, they, um, they love their horses. And I went to this one, um, this one thing where they had this bloke come out from Spain who was teaching people how to ride horses and teaching them how to interact with the horse and I don't know all the terminology for it. But I remember her saying to me, that's 400 years of information that that man carries. And I thought, he's not 400 years old. But what it is, is the information has been passed down from generation to generation to generation so that over 400 years they have retained the information. This is what we're talking about. That is discipleship. And there's something about it where this individual, as he, as he worked with the horses, you can actually see how they respond to him. And it's almost like, he's almost like a horse whisperer. It's almost, it's, it's almost like he's completely at one with these animals. And I thought, how does that happen? I think something dynamic happens. Something dynamic happens when you have that kind of information and knowledge. Knowledge, not in head, but knowledge through lifestyle that is passed down through generations. And the same thing happens. We are generations and generations, thousands of years later. We should have that information that Jesus gave to his disciples inside of us. I want to say to you, church, my belief is this. From what I've observed around the world, something is missing. Something is lacking. I don't think that the Western church has done this well. I think we've veered away from this pattern, this model, and we've built something else. Let's pick it up from verse 29. And and he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed. So now they've believed in him. Faith. What's the first step of salvation? To believe. Once you believe, you become a part of the converted. You step from being the crowd into the converted. But he doesn't stop there. He says, if you abide in my word. So now he's speaking to the believers. Says here that they believed in him, which makes them believers. If you abide, if you remain in obeying my word, you are truly my disciples. So the, the, the prerequisite to becoming a disciple is to abide, obey, remain in, and walk in the word of Jesus. And you will know, now this is the next step. So now you become a disciple from being the converted to being the committed, the discipled. You obey his word. Now because you obey and abide in his word, you now become the disciple. But because you have now become a disciple, then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. You know, we preach, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then we tell people truth and you wonder why they're not being set free. The reason why they're not being set free is because they're not abiding in the word. They're not disciples. 
when you, become, when you obey the Word of God, when you obey Jesus Christ Himself and what He speaks to us, when we see both in the written commands of God, and I don't mean the Ten Commandments, please, but the Word of God is a command to our life. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Jesus doesn't suggest things to us. I suggest that you... No. He gives us a command. It's a direct word to be obeyed. The choice to obey it is yours. If you do not obey what Jesus says, it doesn't make you, it doesn't mean you're not a son. But I believe that that word does not then set you free. I've spoken the truth to many people. I've seen many people receive truth, but, I, but I've seen many of them not be set free. And it becomes frustrating for most pastors, most leaders. They get frustrated. We keep on speaking. We keep on speaking. We, we, what more can I do? I'm washing this person with the word daily. I'm preaching it from the pulpit. Every time I counsel them, I keep giving it to them. You have done all that you can. The model Jesus has is he speaks his word and he walks. And the choice of the individual is to either follow him or to carry on doing their life. We put too much responsibility on ourselves sometimes as leaders to get everyone to follow us. Dave. The woman who lost the coin went looking for it and cleaned her house. The shepherd that lost his sheep left the 99 to find the one, but the father let his son go. It's not a prophetic word. It's an encouragement. Just lets the sun go. Okay? They're not lost. They're just sons that need to go on the journey. And he just waited. And I, I suspect daily prayed. <laughs> I mean, that's all we can do, uh, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know, I, um, I believe that this is what we're called to do. We're not called to make converts. There's actually nowhere in Scripture that gives us that commission. There's two major commissions in Scripture. One is that I can see. There's many. There's many commissions. We can, we can break it all down, but, but there's two main ones that I see in the New Testament. One is, is Jesus in Matthew 10 where he says, As you go. I want you to preach this message. The kingdom, my authority, my governmental structure has come. And then I want you to show them what it looks like. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out demons. That, that's a commission to me. And then you've got the, what we call the Great Commission, which is in Matthew 28, and we'll read that in a moment. But well, let's actually go read it right now. Matthew 28. Now the eleven disciples, from verse 16, the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Interesting. And Jesus came and he said to them, see Jesus is not looking for perfection. He's just looking for people who have an open heart, a hungry heart. Heart. He said this to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now because of this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He doesn't say go and make converts. He says, I want you to go and make disciples. They understood this perfectly. We struggle. We think that if somebody gives their life to Jesus and they attend church once a month, they're a disciple. Feed the poor from time to time, pay their tithes and offering. That makes them a disciple. It doesn't. It makes them a convert. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And may I suggest to you that that isn't putting them in the water and saying, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's not it. That is an outward act that we do. There's a very powerful act, but there's multiple baptisms we see in Scripture. I believe what he's saying here is that you sub the word baptize is that you submerse. It comes from the word where, where they would take a, a, a white cloth and they wanted to make it purple. And they would submerse this cloth into this, this liquid dye that they had made in order to transform this white cloth into a purple cloth so that when it came out of the water, it was completely different. And a purple cloth had a much higher value than white. And that's what happens. 
You go in and you're completely submerged and you come out completely different. But he's speaking about, I want you to submerge, submerge people to the point that they come out differently. Not, the name means the nature and the character of. And so he's saying, I want you to baptize them. I want you to transform them into the nature of the Father, into the nature of the Son who is me, Jesus, and into the nature of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe, slash obey, slash abide in, slash remain steadfast in all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the completion of this age. You know, I, um, what I'm about to say, don't be offended by it. I've observed things and just hear, hear my heart in it, but, but listen to the truth of it. Now, I've got friends who do this, so, and I've done it myself personally, but we, we, some friends of mine, they, they went to schoolies and they went out in the streets and it was preaching Jesus to these crowds of people. And they said, we saw hundreds and thousands get saved. And my question to, to one of them was, how, how do you know? No, no, they, 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 they listened to what I said. And then when I said, say the sinner's prayer, they all closed their eyes and they said what I said. I said, how do you know they're saved? And what did you do with them? Because my friend doesn't go to church. He's not part of a local community. So he couldn't take them anywhere. So maybe 10% of them were converted. But we're not called to convert. We're called to make disciples. And so there was a misfire. There's nothing wrong with going out and preaching the gospel to crowds. But those who respond... The commission that Jesus gives to the church, according to what I see in Scripture, is that it is our role to bring them into discipleship. Where, where does that take place? The model that Jesus has is through local church. Even when he took his 12 disciples, the 72, sorry, 72, and he sent them out two by two, communities, two or more. So Jesus takes his community, because that's the first thing Jesus did when he became a rabbi, is he went and formed the community. He only uses the word church twice. Jesus does, but he models church. He models what true test, New Testament church looks like. People gathered around God himself with a common vision and a common value system moving forward. However big that is. Church may be 12 people. It may be 12,000 people. It's not the point. The point is, what are we doing? Are we making disciples? Or are we gathering crowds? Because I can have a crowd of 12. See, it doesn't mean if you've got a mega church, you've got a crowd. You can have 12 people and have a crowd. But you can have 1,000 people who are disciples. You can have five that are disciples. So Jesus gathers his crowd. Then he takes, sorry, he gathers his disciples and then he disperses them two by two into the communities. And, and, and when they go, he says this to them, go into the villages and find the person of peace. And when you find that person of peace, you must remain with them. Stay in their home. You see, it's not about going and preaching in, this, in, the, in the city square. It's about finding an individual person who is an influence in a community and then remaining with that person to train them up in God's ways because they will gather people and that gathering of people becomes a community that we know now in the New Testament as church. A person of peace is someone that's got an influence. This is the New Testament, this is the New Testament apostolic model that Jesus sets out from the beginning. We look, in, we look at the, the Israelites even. They had to live in communities gathered around Christ at the center. I'm, I'm always cautious of Lone Ranger evangelists. That's just my personal experience. Is that they, they have all these numbers of how many people put up their hand in a crowd. But where are those individuals? The pattern that Jesus gives us is that we draw them into a community. I always encourage my friends who do that. I say to them, guys, plug into a community. The best place to be is, is based in a community, and then from a community you go out, and as you gather people, because your gifting 
automatically does that. As you gather people, you're not gathering them to make a decision, but you're gathering them back into a community where they can be discipled, cared for, trained up in the ways of Jesus so that we multiply who Christ is into them. And then they get put back into the community where they will go and likewise gather and bring in and influence. You know, um, Bethel Church in 2007 um, started this thing called treasure hunting. And I, I, we, we did this for a while as well, and we really, really enjoyed it. And, and it's been very, very successful. But, you know, as of late, um, a friend of mine from Adelaide who leads a church called Paul, Paul Tottil, they went to a leader's advance at Bethel, and um, they actually discussed what they had done. And they came to the realization that, that a lot of what they were doing in these treasure hunts Although it was giving glory to God, it actually, they actually realized that it wasn't serving the community of Reading. It was actually serving to satisfy the desires of a community of students who were actually um, looking for the supernatural of God. And while they experienced it, they realized that they had actually put a divide between themselves and the community of Reading. And so they've gone through a whole shifting and a changing of rather wanting to serve their community. Take employees, take Christians who are disciples of Jesus and make them baristas in coffee shops and waiters and waitresses in restaurants and directors sitting in boardrooms and project managers working on building sites because that's how we're really going to impact our community. And so they've changed things. And I love it. I love seeing... The sick healed, I've, I've laid my hands and had the privilege of laying my hands on people and watching them get healed of spectacular, in, in, sorry, in the most spectacular ways. Um, for some reason, I'm not, I'm not sure why, but every time I lay my hands on someone who's blind or deaf, they never walk away with that deafness or that blindness any longer. I don't know why those two in specific are ones, but I've had the privilege of, of, of with a, a friend of mine, in front of a doctor, laying my hands on, on, a, on a man who died. He had, um, he, he, had, he had died, his body was cold, the doctor had pronounced him dead. Um, and, and myself and my friend, this American bloke, literally in front of the doctor, laid our hands on him. And in less than a minute, warmth returned to his body. He took a breath, came back to life and stood up. The doctor, I asked him, was this man dead? He said, that man was dead. He had no pulse, he was not breathing, and his body was cold. And when he got up and he went and had his test done, the pancreatic cancer that he had, which was in stage three going to stage four, was also gone. <laughs> so this man came back to life and then no cancer in his body. But I've laid my hands on people with cancer, my best friend and late wife, and nothing happened. So I've seen that happen. I'm excited about it. I hate cancer. I hate it with a passion. But if we're not raising disciples, we're not going to see the impact of the kingdom of heaven come. Actually, speaking of cancer, um, we've got a friend. Um, he's a very good friend of mine. He was in Dubai with us. He's actually now in Abu Dhabi. Their little girl, I think she's about two, three years old. Uh, her name's Alexis. She's actually been diagnosed this week with um, leukemia. So they want to do chemotherapy on the child. Obviously, this is not a good thing. You know what I mean? They, they, um, they want to do chemotherapy on her, and then she'll have to take these tablets. Her spleen uh, had swollen up and all these other things. She's got a fever. Her white blood cell count went through the roof. There's been some normality, some stabilizing as they've given her some medication. But what we want to do is I, I think right now, let's, while we're on the subject, let's pray for that girl. Let's just pray. She's in Abu Dhabi right now. Her, her father's name is Francois. And her mother's name is Roma, and her name is Alexis Rose. So, Father, we just thank you for the authority that you've given to us as sons and daughters, as ambassadors for you, Lord Jesus. And we, we know that even though we are here in the spirit, we are there with her right now. We lay our hands upon her in spirit, and we just declare healing into your body, Alexis. We just wash your blood with the blood of Jesus. We just command every single cancerous cell in your body, Alexis, to just die off right now in Jesus' name. 
as the power of God comes upon you, as the Spirit of God breathes on you, that He would destroy every single cancer cell in your body. And we declare and release by the authority given to us in the name of Jesus Christ the King. We just declare peace over you. A peace that surpasses understanding on your life, over you, Francois, over Roma, and over her little sister, Haley. We just declare peace over every one of you in Jesus' name. We also just speak over the chemotherapy treatment that it will not destroy any healthy cells. It will, it will be completely protected from the chemo. But that every single diseased cell would be completely destroyed. We know, Lord, that it will not be through medication. We know that it will be through the power and the authority that is in Jesus, our Messiah. May your kingdom come upon that family. I know that they stand in good spirits, but I also know that fear knocks at the door. We just come against fear and anxiety in the name of our King. Amen. I felt peace when we prayed. That's an amazing feeling. You actually, it's a peace, it's a physical feeling that we have. I'll tell you one thing. I believe cancer will be destroyed in people's bodies. I think, if you don't mind, I mean, I know that we've sung our songs already, but if at the end of this, just to commit a little bit more time, if we can declare over her, and Brenda and them can come and play again when, when the message is over, just to sing, um, you're a good, good father. As a declaration. See, our words, are, our words are a seed. They actually prophesy over that child, right? Jesus has no plan B. You know, Acts 1, sorry, Acts 14, verse 13, it's, it's incredible when, when, when the 12 disciples stand before the, the religious people of their day, they, they, they note that these men were unschooled. Why? Because they had not been through their schooling system of, 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 of coming out of their communities, moved across into Jerusalem, and then sat under the, the, the chief rabbis of their day, the Pharisees. Who didn't start out badly, by the way. And the Pharisees weren't bad people to start with. Just man's ways got in the way. And after the rebellion, um, where, where, where um, the rebels took back the Maccabees, they, they, they fought and they took back Jerusalem. The, the word of God, the Torah, had been so watered down by these foreign nations and it had become illegal for them to even quote these scriptures and to gather in their synagogues anymore. And so there was a great revolution. And out of that revolution, they established, the, the Israelites established that when, once they had taken back Jerusalem, they established the Pharisees to, to cleanse again the people and to speak the word of truth and to declare God's word over them, the Torah to be read. But then over a number of a few hundred years, men just started to make up rules and regulations that were completely out of whack and out of sync with the word of God. And that's what happens in the church today. We make rules and regulations. Binding and loosing is not demonic. It's not about binding demons and loosing them. It's about binding and loosing communities. And let me not digress there. That's, I almost went into a whole other rabbit hole sermon. Acts 14, verse 13. They, they're standing before them. They, they recognize these people as being uneducated and unschooled, but they recognize them as having spent time with Jesus. How would that be? This is the reason why. When you were a disciple of a rabbi, people would recognize you as being under that rabbi or one of his students by how you interpreted the Torah, by how you spoke, by the mannerisms that you used. And so these 12 were recognized as having spent time being disciples of Jesus. I want to say this. I'm saddened, and I'm part of the church of the Western world. I'm saddened that most of the Western church doesn't reflect our rabbi, our teacher, our king. But I think there's a changing that's happening. You know, we've got to be positive about it, but we've also got to be able to recognize error. Now, someone always said, oh, you always got to have positive thinking. Absolutely. But if you, if you, and Jesus very clearly in Revelation identifies issues within the church and addresses them. And, and this brings me to the next point. The model that Jesus uses is invitation and challenge. 
You see, we don't like challenge. Don't challenge me, especially in Australia. Tall poppy syndrome. Let me say this. I pray for this nation. I'm an Australian citizen through my parents, through my dad, effectively. My mom's not. But through my dad, I became an Australian citizen. God moved me to this nation. And I, when people ask me, when I travel, I travel on an Australian passport. Even when I go back to my country of birth. Australia is my home. But I want to say to you, as Australian people, I've noticed some issues. Tall poppy syndrome. I pray that God would chop that snake off at the head. It is destroying this nation because we will not allow people that are chosen to lead us. And so we flip backwards and forwards. If you say what tickles my ears, I'll, I will support you. But then when you, and then we will, we will bring you into power. We will, we will bring you as our prime minister, our leader of our church, whatever. But as soon as you challenge me on my way of living, I will cut you off and I will move on to the next person. That is destructive at the root. God, break that thing off this nation. It's destructive and it's pathetic. It is not the way of the kingdom. I'm telling you, it's not the way of the kingdom. And so we, we hate it when, when, when those who are discipling us, and every one of us need to be discipled, me included. And when you reach a certain point, you begin to disciple others. That's just the pattern that Jesus Christ established. But when you, when you are being discipled, this is two things. You, are, you cannot disciple someone unless they've been invited. And when you are invited, you need to allow yourself to be challenged. Like if you're late for church and work, someone's going to challenge you that you need to be on time. And when you listen and you bring about change, something wonderful happens in your life. I was challenged. I've been challenged well and I've been challenged badly. But I can tell you, even in the bad challenges by a man that was so controlling. I listened to what God was saying through this man, even though he was sometimes a donkey. But can I tell you something? I realized that I was probably more of a donkey than he was. And so I listened to, to the voice of God through the individual. And I can tell you right now, it's the best thing I ever did. It did. It changed my life. I was a rat bag, an absolute rebel. And somewhere I've become a little bit of a tamed pony. Not entirely because I, I, I don't want to be completely contained by man. But I've, I've learned how to, how to harness certain things that would be destructive. Particularly this thing here. The, my tongue. Sometimes it comes out, I can... And, and, and like the Germans, the South Africans are also quite abrupt, unfortunately. But our hearts are full of love. So just read between the lines. See the love coming out. That's why when Edith talks, I'm like, yeah, that's fine. You'd rather you than me. You know what I mean? <laughs> so would you want to put up that um, slide? I made a little slide. Oh, someone made a slide for me. I drew it. Someone made it because I'm not good at power. I don't do PowerPoint. I'm not good. But this is, the, the, if you look at the two, the two sides, you've got a high invitation but a low challenge. actually gives you a cozy culture. I want to suggest to you that majority of the consumer-driven Western-style church sits there. We've got high invitations. Come to our stuff. Come, we've got fancy stuff. Fancy lights, good, comfortable buildings. We've got all the Christian paraphernalia you want. Every ministry under the sun that you can join as and when you wish to. High invitation, but very low challenge. Don't worry, you don't have to get involved. As long as you come, we'll give you a cup of coffee. The kids will go off. There'll be a 20-minute sermonette. There's no challenge in, in transforming life. There's enough in there to make you feel like I need to come back again because, you know, Jesus wants me to change. But, but not enough challenge face-to-face -face in relationship. Like, hey, Mel, sort yourself out. This thing is destructive in your life. It's a bad, stinking, thinking way of living, and it's actually doing this, this, and this. Guys did that to me. That's how I was discipled. And you go, that's a bit harsh, Brad. Let me tell you, when someone said to me the one day, I was paddling in the surf, and he said, what does your dad do? And in true Brad style, I just spoke. I said, hey, he does this, this, this. We got out to backline, and he sits down. His name was Elvin, Elvin Schwab. What a great guy. And we sit down. No, he was a good guy. I really liked him. We sit at backline. He paddles up to me. He sits down. And he goes, you know, Brad, you just swear too much. Every second word that came in. And I said, I didn't think I swore. And he said, every second word was just a, just a complete curse word. And he said, that's not going to be conducive to you sharing what God's put on your heart for people. And I just took that on board. I thought, okay. And I started watching what I said. And everything started changing because I, I swore like a trooper. 
But a cozy culture won't give you that because if I challenge you, you'll go. So I want to keep you because numbers mean everything. Numbers are success. If I fill this building with people, we've built a successful church. Where do we see that in Scripture? Nowhere. Jesus actually thins out a crowd. Look, there's too many of you here, and I know what you're coming for because you want your fleshly bellies filled. And I'm a chatter, make you nice and comfortable, so I'm going to give you the most challenging message ever. And then he still turns to the 12 and says, are you also going to go? And they said, now in true style, like us, we have no idea what you say most of the time. And we are afraid and we are confused and people want to kill you and us, but we don't know where to go because when we are with you, you speak words of love. Jesus challenged them all the time. One moment, you are the son of the living God. Get behind me, Satan. Imagine I said that to one of our worship leaders. Get behind me, Satan. Ooh, I'll go somewhere where they make nice lattes rather. Because that's how we do it. Oh. But Jesus, get behind me, Satan. You've got the things of men in your, in, your, in your heart. Okay, well, I'll stay with you. Why? Because I don't know. I come alive when I'm with you. We don't want cozy culture. Low invitation and low challenge is apathetic culture. That there is predominantly our traditional old style of denominational church. It's just apathetic. That church will shrink over years to five people who just won't let go and won't recognize change. And that church will, will close because all of its people died of old age. Then we've got high challenge but low invitation. And this is the key. If we do not have high invitation, come follow me, come into my life, what happens is we become these legalistic men who are just constantly, or women, constantly addressing people's issues, constantly challenge, 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 but there's no invitation to come and eat of my life. Come be a part of my journey. Come and look at me and watch me in my failures so that you can see I'm human as well as in my successes. So we become discouraged because it's just constantly addressing my five, my 10, my 100 issues as I spoke a few weeks ago. And my, my partner wonderfully um, said to me, you didn't tell them the positive outcome of that. But the positive outcome of that whole time, remember I said I kept going back to that same church and visiting them after they had you know, pretty much dishonored us and going. I kept pursuing and pursuing, and I met this man and his wife in Hong Kong, and he took me out for dinner, and I remember afterwards he wept, and he just said, I'm so sorry. We treated you that way. I apologize. And then he invited me to come and actually minister back into the life of that church. Restoration through persistence in not letting a man dictate the condition of my heart. But this is Jesus. High invitation and high challenge builds an empowering culture. That's the model we want to model. Is we want to invite you into our life. Invite this community into the lives of one another. And then through that, we will challenge each other. Don't go out looking to challenge someone. But what happens is when something is said, when something is done, when something is not conducive, it's quite comfortable when you're in a good relationship with someone say, hey buddy, you know what? Being late is not good. Just not good. Ah, oh, okay. Let me think about it. It's not good. Let me change. Well, hey, mate, the way you speak is not good. It's just not conducive. People, you, you've got something great to say. But if you speak like that, you're going to lose your audience. People are not going to honor and respect you. That's pretty much all I really do want to say is that we want our community, any church really, any church that we plant, any church that we support, is we want, we want it to, to become a, a discipleship base where people go back into the community, which is where you are placed every single day. And you begin to mimic. The people then recognize that you've been with Jesus. That's the key. It might take years, but there's an impact. You become a, a steady, good employee, a good employer, a great friend, a good son, daughter, a good sibling. I mean, I've got a lot to learn. Let me tell you, I'm up here and I'm going, Chief Brad, you need to be sitting there and listening to the bloke that's telling you this sermon because he's preaching a damn good message. But I've got to listen to myself because I honestly fail daily. Come watch me play soccer. I'm a rabid animal at times. Actually, don't come watch me because you'll have a whole different outlook on me. 
you, you'd go, that guy's just failing at everything he just told us. It's the adrenaline. I can't control it. <laughs> I'm just very, I'm just very, I love playing soccer and I'm competitive. I'm very passionate. Thank you. That's a great, that is the best excuse word that we as leaders use for our failures. We are passionate people and the passion came out. I am. I'm passionate. I'm passionate about everything I do and I'm passionate about this. I believe that this is the model we see Jesus establishing and if it's the model that Jesus established, establishes, it is, sorry, if it is the model that Jesus established, it is, friends, the only model. You can, oh, we can do that. No, no. He is our rabbi. We will mimic him 100% with what he did. And what he does and Jesus surpasses all culture over every age. You can't go, oh, it's cultural. No, no, no. If Jesus does it, that's the way forward. He gave value to women as disciples. He gave value to those who have been outcast, and he gave value to those who were in the highest positions. So it's for everyone. But this is the model that I believe as community we need to follow. Amen? Amen. Thank you. That's so, so true. Um, I actually want to make a provision here this morning for repentance. Now, re- repentance doesn't have to be a 180 degree turn. It is, but it doesn't have to be. Quite often, um, we need daily repentance to reset our course. And you know, as, as Brad's been speaking this morning, I, I have found and I've, I've actually received the rebuke. Because we, we do, we sit in this cozy, comfortable culture. And that's actually what we, what we shoot for. We want the coziness. We want the comfort. Jesus never said, follow me and I'll make you comfortable. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so I want to, just as we make, I want to make the altar out here available this morning for you to take a step and realign yourself with the commissions that our Heavenly Father has given us that require obedience, that require abiding. And for many of us, that means that that requires a repentance because we have not walked as we ought. I'm immediately drawn to Revelations 3. Holy Spirit has spoken to me this morning about repentance. Because in the in the cozy, comfortable Western church world, this is our position. We say we're rich, we've become wealthy and have need of nothing. And we actually do not know that we are poor wretched, miserable, blind, and naked. Jesus counseled us to buy from him gold refined in the fire that you can actually be rich, clothed with white garments. That our shame of our nakedness may not be revealed that our eyes would be anointed with ourselves so that we can actually see. And here's the key. As we are rebuked by a heavenly loving dad, it actually reveals his love for us because he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. I can't say where you are positioned this morning in what you believe 
and how you are following Jesus. One of the things that challenges me immensely is when Paul says, follow Christ as, follow me as I follow Christ. And this morning, I actually want to ask you, can you confidently say that to those whom you are engaging with? Can you confidently say that to the people in your workplace that you have relationship and community with? Follow me as I follow Christ. Do they even know that you are a believer or that you are a disciple? Is Jesus speaking? And Jesus was speaking to the believers. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And here's the challenge. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. The invitation is here. The invitation is here for you to respond, answer the call, and allow yourself to be challenged. Maybe the challenge is even moving you out of your seat to respond. The altar is open. Let's respond to the love of God. And even as we 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 respond in the in the manner that He is a good, good Father, He come He He draws us to deliver us, to redeem us, to reconcile us, and then give us that ministry of reconciliation as well. That we can actually sing healing over a little girl in Africa in, in Abu Dhabi is it?